one that you don't have on your person, if you want to grab one, uh, feel free to do that. We're in Luke chapter 2, and we'll also be in John chapter 1. So give your attention to TJ as he reads God's Word for us. In those days, a decree went forth from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you take your Word now, and would you marinate our hearts by it? Would you change us? Would you help us to leave this place different because of the finished work of Jesus Christ? In your name we pray. Amen. Several years ago, I was on vacation with my extended family, you know, cousins and lots of little kids and my parents, and we, we decided that we would get together and do something as a family. You know how those vacations go where you come together as a family, but you actually never, like, spend time together as a family. And so we decided we would get a puzzle. So we bought this puzzle, and we put it out on this card table, and we said, by the end of the week, we're going to finish this thing. And so we spread all these pieces out. And now you know what it's like when you go on vacation with your family and they're young. You've got lots of kids running around, right? It's like organized chaos. And so we, we got to the end of the week and we're closing in on finishing this puzzle and the picture's coming together and we're starting to see it. And you can, you can guess what happened. We get to the very, very end and the dreaded missing piece. I mean, it's infuriating to work on a puzzle all week long and you get to the very end and you can't find the one piece you need to finish it. And so we looked under the couch cushions and we looked in the kitchen drawers and we looked behind the books. Everywhere. Nothing. The missing piece. You ever get to the end of your year and the bonus that you're banking on wasn't quite what you thought it would be? Like, you... Those pounds that you wanted to lose last January, you're, you're here, and they're still with you. That relationship isn't quite healed. That, that biology grade that you really were banking on was lower than you thought. Listen, sometimes it's so frustrating. It's like that problem that still keeps you up at night, the one missing piece. It's like you've got a puzzle and there's one piece missing and it's driving you nuts. It's so frustrating. What TJ just read and what we're going to look at this morning goes like this. The argument for the scripture preached is simply this. The missing piece to the puzzle of your problems, whatever they are, is the incarnation of Jesus. The missing piece to the puzzle of your problems, the very problem you're thinking about this morning, 
is the incarnation of Jesus? What is the incarnation of Jesus? Why does it matter? What does it do for us? Let's look at those three questions together, shall we? What is the incarnation of Jesus? What is the incarnation of Jesus? Listen, the word incarnation is a word that gets slung around all during this time of year. You ever go to the, the bluegrass jazz and chili cook-off over in Claremore? You ever been there? And you eat what? What do you eat? You eat chili con carne, right? You eat chili with meat. The, the word incarnation just comes from the Latin word incarne, like chili con carne with meat. Incarne just means in the flesh. It's the idea that Jesus, who existed eternally with the Father and the Holy Spirit, came down and he took on flesh in his birth on Christmas morn. That is, he incarnated himself with us, that he wasn't just God who appeared to be human. And he also just wasn't some dude who thought he was God. He was, as theologians say, fully God and fully man. This is the way that John puts it. You heard it read earlier. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Glory of the only Son from the Father. Jesus was the second person of the Holy Trinity who existed forever with his Father and the Holy Spirit in perfect community. And Jesus took on flesh. He became human. So you might say it this way. The incarnation. The incarnation is the moving in of the eternal word of God so that he utterly identifies with us in every way. I'm going to say it again. The incarnation is the moving in of the eternal word of God so that he utterly identifies with you and me in every way. Does that make sense? Do you remember the first time you got a tattoo? For those of you who have tattoos, do you remember the first time you got a tattoo? And you went into that tattoo parlor and you had like these mix of emotions. You were like really excited and a little scared. Like it was a big deal, right? It's a big deal. Because once you go down that path, you can't go back. It marks you. It changes you. Like, your, your skin has changed. Now, imagine that you went into the tattoo parlor, and you got a tattoo from your top of your head to the bottom of your feet. Every bit of your body was tattooed. Can you imagine that with me? Imagine how people would look at you, how different you would feel. Your life would be utterly different, wouldn't it? Having a tattoo from head to toe is not even close to how infinitely radical it was when Jesus took on flesh to become human. Jesus became like us in every way, even experiencing the most traumatic event in human life, birth. Now, there's a, um, a line from the song that we just sang, O Come, All You Faithful. And the line, did you, did you hear it when you read it, is, He abhors not the virgin's womb. 
Now that causes a little bit of wonder, doesn't it? I remember when my children were born, and I remember noticing the skill of the obstetrician to be able to hold that child because they were so slippery. Like, birth is messy. And isn't it amazing that the eternal God did not shun being born? The incarnation is that the eternal word of God moved in to utterly identify with us in every way. Now, why does that even matter? It matters because Jesus was the human that you and I were intended to be. What do you mean human? Jesus was the man that you and I were intended to be, that we could not be, that we aren't. Wait a minute, what do you mean? Like Seneca said, to err is human, right? Alexander Pope said, to err is human and forgive is divine. Yes, but actually they're not right. To err is not human. To err is fallen humanity, isn't it? Jesus was the only perfect human. He lived the life that you could not live. When we were created in the garden, it all goes back to Genesis chapter 1. God created us in his image in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He created us to be just like him and to live forever in fellowship with him. But rather than listen to the counsel of God, friends, listen, Adam chose to listen to the, counselor of, the counsel of another. Who was that? It was Eve as she had been deceived by Satan. And so Adam struck his own path. And we, by our descendancy from Adam, have followed that same path ever since. So that when we're born, yes, in one sense we are born in his image and likeness, yes. But we are not as we were intended to be. Why is the incarnation so important? Because Adam fell in sin. And our problem on Christmas Day is not just that we do bad things. It's not like we just are a dirty truck that needs to be washed. Our problem is so much deeper. We are descendants of our father, Adam. And if that's true, then therefore, we are without hope for salvation unless there comes someone who can complete what we could never complete, who could be the second Adam. And that's what the incarnation means. Only complete identification with our flesh could Jesus be the second Adam. Are you with me? This is very important. Only by identifying with us in every way could Jesus be the perfect Adam that Adam was not. And Adam sinned and died as a man. And because he sinned and died as a man, only a man named Jesus could come and be the second Adam and complete what the first Adam failed to do and be a mediator between God and man. Why? Because only flesh can die. Now, does that idea make sense to you? Children, Jesus became the second Adam. In the beginning was the Word. It sounds very much like the way the Bible begins. John chapter 1 and Genesis 1 are very, very similar. Why does John start the Bible? 
his gospel out like that because Jesus is the new beginning. He is the second Adam to complete what the first Adam could not complete. That's why it matters. And the new Adam introduces to us a humanity whereby everybody who associates with Christ is not just forgiven. They are renewed. The problem with us is not that we are like a dirty truck that just needs to be washed. It's that we need a completely different transmission. And Adam, because of his decision, and us through Adam, failed and therefore without hope, Christ became for us the second Adam. That's why the incarnation is so important. And we call it the incarnation because it's one word that gives an entire depth of meaning through just three syllables, incarnate four. It matters. What is it? It's that the eternal word of God moved in to utterly identify with us, with us in every way. Why does it matter? Because Jesus became for us the second Adam. He stood in our place. He took on what we could not in that he lived a perfect relationship with his heavenly father. He became the mediator between God and man. Now, stay with me. What does the incarnation do? What does it do? In all relationships, whether it's a marriage or a parent and child or friends, at some point, the relationship goes something like this. It's your fault. No, it's not. It's your fault. Dude, no, it's not. It's you, right? What happens when you, when you see the experience of that together? Like, like, it makes you feel awkward when you watch this as a third party. Why? Because the relationship's falling apart before your eyes. It's, it's crumbling. Whenever two parties refuse to budge an inch or refuse to, con to offer concession to the other, Whenever they stubbornly blame it on somebody else, what happens? The relationship goes awry. You, you and I have experienced this before. And then at some point, this happens. No, it's your fault. No, bro, it's yours. No, it's yours. Yeah, you're right. It is me. And somebody lowers their defenses, right? Somebody lowers their shield. Somebody takes the blow. And what happens when that relationship, when that happens in a relationship? Like, the relationship is mended, isn't it? It's healed. It's restored because somebody let the blow land. The verbal blow connected on their chin, and they just took it. Why do they do that? Because they want to win that person back. And sometimes when you lower your shield, when you lower your defenses, that relationship actually becomes tighter and more intimate than it was before. You know what this is like, right? I mean, boys, you may remember if you've ever gotten in a fight on the school ground, you know that the guy that you had the fight with in second grade becomes like your best friend by sixth grade. You just get it over with. And because you lower your shield and you become vulnerable. The incarnation allows us to have confidence in vulnerability. Because many of us live our entire life, and we walk fairly alone. We have lots of associations and fellowships and relationships, but we're really not known very well because we're constantly putting up our defenses. The incarnation is that Jesus lowered his shield, and he didn't just lower his shield because it was his fault. No, he lowered his shield, and he, 
lowered his defenses because he took your blame on himself. And why did he do that? Because he loves you. He didn't feel like he had to go toe-to-toe with you. You would have lost. He lowers his shield and he takes the blow so that your relationship with him might be mended. The joy, the practical implications of something like the incarnation, which can feel so intimidating when you first hear that word, is that you can be vulnerable with other people. That was what you were intended to be. You become a picture of Jesus. So that when you open yourself up to other people, you know you can take on their blows. Why? Because you have a Savior who utterly identifies with you in every way. He knows what it's like to take on those blows. Because he took your blows on him. And he loves you. There's no way to have a real relationship without becoming vulnerable and hurt. And to think that the unassailable, impotent, I mean, omnipotent God became a baby is the ultimate expression of letting down your shield. This is how C.S. Lewis put it. You love anything and your heart will be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it no one, give it to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries and void all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe and dark and motionless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Because to love means to be vulnerable. Some of you look forward in this church to becoming good friends with other people. The glory of the good news of the gospel at Christmas is that you can lower your shield. And you don't have to always be right. Because there's only one perfect person in this room. And it's Christ your Lord. And he comes to you in love and he says, become like you were created to be. Vulnerable. Breakable. Because I love you. When you let the barriers down, you'll move into intimacy and the depths of people and relationship that you never have experienced before. That's why the incarnation matters. That's what it does. That's not all it does. The Apostle Paul describes the incarnation this way. He says, The Word of God dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full and grace of grace and truth. The word dwelt among us in Greek literally means he tabernacled among us, that he pitched his tent in our camp. And it's, of course, a metaphor looking back to the Old Testament when God tabernacled among his people. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was where God moved in with his people, wasn't it? And the tabernacle in the Old Testament has no meaning outside of Jesus Christ, the one who would come and permanently tabernacle with his people, the church, us. Paul says, for in Jesus all the fullness of, of deity dwells in bodily form. Think about Jesus at the tabernacle for just a second. Think about this idea that Jesus, kids, pitched his tent with us and dwelt in and among us. You got it? Can you imagine that image? The tabernacle was for use in the wilderness in the Old Testament. 
And yet Jesus was led by the Spirit out into the wilderness, wasn't he? The tabernacle was outwardly very humble, very unattractive. Jesus had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. No appearance that we should be attracted to him, Isaiah 53 says. The tabernacle is where God met with men. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The tabernacle was the center of Israel's camp. It was a gathering place for God's people. And Jesus says in John 12 that, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men back to myself. Now hear me. Jesus is the tabernacle. The tabernacle was where God's people made sacrifices for their sins. And of Jesus it says, but he having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The tabernacle is the place of worship. What did Thomas say to Jesus? My Lord and my God. Just as the tabernacle reminds Israel that God dwells with and among them, amidst their misery and amidst their suffering, friends, so also does your Savior remind you that he has pitched your tent, his tent, with you right now in the midst of your suffering. So, those of you who feel the pain of rejection, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 26, couldn't you just stay awake with me for one hour? Those of you who are caring for aging parents, what did Jesus say from the cross? He looked down and says, John, behold your mother. He was taking care of his mom. Those of you who, who say, Jesus, where are you? I've lost my job. I'm getting foreclosed on. I'm broke and I'm scared. Jesus' foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of God has no place to lay his head. Jesus knows what you're going through, and he's with you. Do you feel alone? Do you feel rejected? Charlie is saving the whole church service right now. Thank you, Charlie. You can just blow those out. You didn't think we had candle lighters at this church, but now we do. Thank you. Listen, Jesus um, knows what it's like to be rejected. There was no room for him in the inn. The very first thing Jesus learns is that his family was rejected. Jesus, I can't handle this. This is a nagging problem. And Jesus says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Friends, the point of all this is to say Jesus knows you and he's with you. And whatever problem you bring to the table, your Savior bears it. Your parents may not know how to relate. Your friends may not know how to relate, but Christ does. When we see Jesus dying on the cross, what kind of God do you see? Do you see a condemning God with judgment? That's the impression most people have of Christians in this area. No, you see a God of love, giving of himself to you. Do you see a remote God standing far off being completely disconnected with the mercy needs and the need for justice in our society today? No. Jesus draws in and he's intimate and he's connected. He's involved. He takes on flesh. That's how involved he is. Jesus tabernacled among us. 
The incarnation gives us a resource for strength and suffering because in it, we see God's willingness to enter our world and to suffer with and for us. John Donne, the old English poet, says it this way, the whole of Christ's life was one continual passion. Others die martyrs, but Christ was born that way. He found a Golgotha where he was crucified, even in Bethlehem where he was born. For in his tenderness, then the straws were almost as sharp as the thorns after. And the manger, as uneasy at first as the cross at last. His birth and his death were but one continual act. And this Christmas day and this coming Good Friday are but one, about the evening and the morning of the one and the very same day. When my family was on vacation, finally at last, at last, the very end of the trip, we found that missing piece. And we put the piece where it belonged. The missing piece to the puzzle of your problems, no matter how old you are. And children, this isn't just a sermon for your mom and dad. This is for you too. Is believing in the incarnation of Jesus. That he took on flesh to be like us in every way. Yet without sin. So we can honestly be able to admit that we are more broken and sinful than we can ever imagine. But yet we can also be more loved and accepted than we could ever dare dream at the exact same time. And when we came back to this vacation home at the very next year, you know what we found? We found that in this home, that, pic that puzzle that we'd been put, struggling to put together was not just on that table. It actually been framed and lacquered and stuck on the wall so that when you walk into that home now, you think as soon as you walk in that door, the missing piece finally made the puzzle whole. The incarnation is the missing piece that you need. It means that Jesus moved in and he can identify with you in every way. It means that he became your second Adam so that you might be able to rest in his righteousness. And what does it do for you? It lets you be honest. It lets you be vulnerable. And it gives you confidence in that vulnerability. Because your Savior, the one who flung the stars into the heavens, knows you by name. And he's not angry at you. He loves you. And he sings of his love for you. And it doesn't just make you confident in being vulnerable, but it also gives you strength in the midst of suffering. That's a good gift to have Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the good gift we can have at Christmas. Yourself. Would you remind us that we need you? That you are far more believable, believable and beautiful than we could ever imagine. And we thank you that you came to dwell with us in the flesh so that we who are in the flesh might have life as we are intended to have as your sons and your daughters. Amen.